Well, good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here in person and online as well. Now, two weeks into the book of First Timothy, we've gotten a pretty good lay of the land so far. In our first Sunday, we read that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to address false teaching in the churches there. But on top of sending Timothy, Paul also sent this letter. And both of those gestures show us how important sound doctrine was to Paul, how important it was to Timothy, and how important it ought to be to us as well. And then last Sunday, we read Paul's words reminding the Ephesian Christians of the basic story of the gospel, the good deposit. And really, for Paul, the gospel could be boiled down to nine words, if you had to. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Those nine words sum up the gospel. They sum up Paul's story. They sum up the story of every Christian. And those nine words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, are a good place to start when it comes to rebuting false teaching and pursuing sound doctrine. But now as we pick up today, Paul leaves his testimony behind and gets back down to business. We'll spend the next two weeks primarily in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy. And these two chapters are usually considered one large section of the book. The overarching theme of these next two Sundays may be found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says there that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So how exactly should we as Christians, people justified by the broken body and shed blood of Christ, reconciled to God the Father, our sins forgiven and dwelt by the Holy Spirit? How should we behave in the household of God? The church. How should we handle those who attempt to harm us and divide us? How should we pray? What should we pray for? How should we relate to each other? Who should our leaders be? Who should our leaders not be? Those are the questions that we'll discuss over these next two Sundays. So open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, we encourage you to follow along no matter where you are. But before we read, let's pray together. Lord, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time to be here. Thank you for the privilege of being not just at a church or in a church, but for being a church. Thank you that we as this body of believers... We can look at ourselves not just as a group of people in a church building, not just a group of people who have similar interests or hobbies or personalities or leanings, but that we can refer to ourselves and consider ourselves a household of God, that we can consider ourselves part of your family because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that these next two Sundays, as we read your word in 1 Timothy, Uh, that we would have a better understanding of what it means to be part of your household and what the proper ways for us to conduct ourselves 
really are and how it is that we're called to live as your family in the church. Lord, thank you for your word that you've given to us, that we have this word we can look to for guidance and direction. Thank you for your spirit who fills us and inspired this word. And thank you for your son, the one who makes our mutual family possible by his broken body and shed blood. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. In case we've forgotten what Paul's charge for Timothy is, you can look back at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Timothy was called to rebuke the false teachers out of love, out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Timothy was called by God to do this. He was set apart, handpicked by Paul to do this. And Timothy must guard these things within himself, and he also must help the false teacher recover these things in themselves. And the only way he can do that, the only way they can do that, is by committing and returning to the truth of the gospel. Now, this will not be easy. That's why Paul compares it to warfare. You shouldn't throw that word around lightly, but that's what Paul says here. He compares it to warfare. This will be a fight. It will be a battle. But according to Paul, this war must be waged. And Paul gives an example of why in the following verses, picking up in verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we have these two men mentioned, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And the fact that Paul names names, that right there tells you just how high the stakes really are when it comes to the problem of false teaching versus sound doctrine. That Paul would publicly call these two men out by name may seem harsh, but this is war. These men needed to be rebuked. The church The household of God needed to know who these men were. That way they wouldn't be fooled by them. These men are waging war against the church. They're waging war against the gospel. The words in this passage seem to indicate that they did not accidentally fall into this false teaching. They were not naive or ignorant or misguided. They deliberately rejected the truth. They shipwrecked themselves as a result and are now trying to drag other believers down to the bottom with them. So Paul calls it warfare. He names names. He says they are shipwrecking themselves. Clearly, Paul believes that the very life of the church in Ephesus is on the line. This is nothing to handle with kid gloves. And for one more final proof of just how seriously Paul takes these issues, 
Look at verse 20. What do you think Paul means when he says that he has handed these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that he has handed them over to Satan? Well, Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in that case of an intentionally, publicly, persistently, disruptively sinful man, Paul commanded the church there to deliver him to Satan. And in the context of Corinthians, that meant excommunication, kicking him out of the church. And so it's safe to assume that Paul might be commanding the same thing here. Now, this is always a last resort. Surely Paul would have tried every other form of teaching and accountability and discipline before it gets to this point. It's a worst case scenario. And when it's done, it's never done because you've given up on the person. It's done with the hope that in time, God might wake that person up from their sin, draw them to repentance, reconcile them to their brothers and sisters in Christ, and restore them to a good fellowship in the church. This sort of drastic step of kicking someone out, excommunication, handing them over to Satan, That may offend our modern sensibilities, but Paul says this is warfare. The stakes really are that high when it comes to false teaching. It simply can't be tolerated within the household of God. A church is a place to teach and promote and guard the truth of the gospel. The good deposit. A church is a place where error should be exposed and confronted and rejected and corrected. And sometimes that requires discipline. Sometimes it requires protecting the flock. Sometimes it requires taking a firm stand. That's never to be taken lightly, never to be applied flippantly or in a rush. But sometimes it's necessary. So that's one thing we see about the household of God. But we move on to chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We see a second characteristic. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, all different forms of prayer, be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So we've seen the vigilance with which the church should handle false teaching. But how else should believers behave in the household of God? Well, we should pray. We should pray for all people from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low. We should pray that God and his grace might save all of those who don't know and love and worship Christ. Now, the guidance to pray seems like a no brainer 
doesn't it? Well, of course we should pray. We're Christians. That seems like Christianity 101. But let's be honest. How often do we do it? When's the last time we prayed for all people? When's the last time we prayed for our leaders? One reason Paul might be stressing this is that the false teachers in Ephesus may have had a very exclusive attitude about the gospel. They may have convinced themselves and convinced others that God was only interested in saving people like them. And thus, why even bother for praying for anybody else? As long as I'm saved, then I don't really care about other people. But Paul reminds us of the universal scope of the gospel. He reminds us that God will save all kinds of people in this world, and they won't just be people like us. We should pray for this to happen. We should rejoice when it does happen. Now, we know that not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will believe. But we should pray for and share the gospel with everyone we meet. Paul's own ministry is a great example of just how broad the family of God can be and how diverse its members can be. Paul was famously known or depending on who you talk to, infamously known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul did not pick and choose who he shared the gospel with. He did not pick and choose who he prayed for. He preached in synagogues. He preached in the Areopagus. He preached to Jews. He preached to Gentiles. He preached to the rich. He preached to the poor. He preached to men. He preached to women. And surely he prayed for them as well. Paul shared the gospel generously, liberally, knowing that while not everyone would ultimately believe it, his job was to spread it with all he encountered. Remember last week, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you had to distill the gospel into nine words, that's a good place to go. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if every person in this world is a sinner, which we as Christians believe, then that ought to motivate us to share the gospel generously, to pray for all people, to not ever assume that someone is beyond the reach of God's grace. Now, more specifically, Paul does say that we should pray for those in high positions. What does that mean? Well, that includes rulers and officials on the local level, state level, national level, even the international level, and not just the leaders, not just the authorities who make the news. And when you think about it now, in the middle of a crisis, it's as good a time as ever to pray that worldly leaders would have some basic level of wisdom and decency, character and competence. But Paul specifically says that we should pray that worldly leaders would allow us, as in Christians, the household of God, to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What does he mean by a peaceful and quiet life? Well, we do not pray that leaders would just let us relax, that we could be on a permanent vacation in the church. We pray for peaceful and quiet lives because that's an atmosphere conducive to fruitful ministry. 
That's an atmosphere where good ministry can happen. History tells us that when worldly leaders get too cozy with the church, more often than not, the church ends up being corrupted. And then on the other extreme, history tells us that when worldly leaders persecute the church, Christians suffer. Ministry gets harder. And so according to Paul, a good prayer is simply that worldly leaders would let Christians live their lives peacefully, perform our ministry faithfully. Just leave us alone and let us be the church is a good prayer for us to pray. So we've already seen two characteristics of the household of God. Number one, the church must not tolerate false teaching. Hymenaeus and Alexander learned that the hard way. And number two, the church should be a house of prayer for all people. We pray that everyone we meet might come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. We pray the same thing for our leaders. And we pray for an atmosphere conducive to good ministry. But what else characterizes the household of God? Well, this is when the passage starts to get a little bit sticky. Picking up in chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay, that's pretty uncontroversial. Verse 9. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So in Ephesus, both male and female believers had fallen short in their behavior in the household of God. Apparently, the men were better at arguing than praying. Surprise. The women were more concerned with external experiences than with godliness. But both groups were likely guilty of allowing their sin to spill over into the corporate gathering of the church on Sunday morning. Both male and female believers in Ephesus were disrupting formal worship. You know, in some ways, the church in Ephesus sounds like they might have gotten along with the church in Corinth. They struggled with some of the same things. But then as we move ahead in the passage, Paul begins to focus more specifically on the women of the church. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is the point in the passage where you wonder what in the world is going on. What exactly is Paul teaching here? When he says that a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness in verse 11, is he saying that women literally cannot speak in the church? Are women not allowed to ask questions and share their opinions or practice legitimate God-given spiritual gifts? Well, not in a way that's disruptive, but then again, that's true of the men as well. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul seems to imply that godly women there were more than welcome to speak in church. 
So does this verse teach that women can have no role in Sunday morning worship? That they sit quietly and tamely back while the men do all the work? No, that's not what verse 11 teaches. But then what about verse 12? Is verse 12 a purely local command? Is Paul saying that only the women in Ephesus who have been led astray by false teachers cannot teach or exercise authority over the men there in that time, in that place? Or is this a universal command? Is Paul saying that no woman anywhere in any church at any time can teach or exercise authority over a man? Is this even a dispute about women and men at all? Or is it more limited to disputes between husbands and wives? These are the questions that get asked about this passage. And there are lots of godly believers. There are lots of faithful students of scripture who disagree on what this means. Many of them disagree on how to apply it in the church today. And if this passage was easy to interpret, there wouldn't be so much debate. There wouldn't be so many questions. There wouldn't be so much controversy. There wouldn't be so many books written about it. There are good arguments on both sides. There are also unhealthy extremes on both sides. So where does our church land? Well, our church takes the position that this passage limits teaching or exercising authority over the church, primarily in the role of elder, to men. We'll talk about that a bit more next week in chapter 3, when Paul starts talking about leadership. As for why our church takes this position that we do, Paul doesn't seem to treat this as a purely local issue in Ephesus. There are multiple reasons for that, but the most obvious argument is seen in verses 13 and 14. In those verses, Paul refers back to the Garden of Eden. Both the order in which Adam and Eve were created, as well as the circumstances of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. Paul seems to be arguing that from the beginning of God's creation, including before sin entered the world, men and women have been created differently. And according to Paul, this reality ought to inform the leadership structure of the church. It ought to inform the practice of the church today, the way we work in the household of God. Now, it's important to stress that Paul is not teaching that women are inferior to men. In a sense, Adam and Eve sinned in different ways in the Garden of Eden, but they both ended up sinning. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. If anything, that could make Adam look worse. But they both sinned. So ultimately, neither Adam or Eve had any reason to look down on the other. Both sinned in their own unique manner. Just because they did it differently doesn't mean that one was better than the other in terms of their God-given dignity, their God-given worth. Adam and Eve and the men and women like us who call them our ancestors are not qualitatively different from each other. We all possess the same worth, the same dignity, the same value, the same image of God residing within us. But we are functionally different from each other. And Paul uses that example of Adam and Eve to make the point that men and women from the beginning 
both before sin entered the world and after are different. And the household of God, the church, functions best when both men and women embrace the unique roles that God has given us without compromising, without questioning the dignity and the worth of either. So in these instructions about how believers are called to function within the church, the household of God, Paul has found all kinds of ways to stir the pot, hasn't he? Talking about things like excommunication, talking about the significance of false doctrine and just how vigilantly it will not be tolerated. Telling people that you can't pick and choose who to pray for. You pray for all people. You pray for leaders, not just the ones you like. Men and women are different from each other, and their roles within the church will be different as well. That's all stuff that can rub people the wrong way. But before we close, what in the world is happening in verse 15? We can't skip over verse 15. It's Paul saying that women are saved through having babies. Because if the earlier verses didn't already offend you, you'd probably be offended by that. But that's not what Paul's teaching. If we go back to the Garden of Eden again, we may see what Paul is talking about. One of the unique roles that Eve had that Adam didn't was bearing children. Ancient people knew this. Modern people should know this. It's a common sense example of how men and women are different. And it was through Eve's ability to bear children that God would bring about redemption for sinful mankind. In Genesis 3.15, God issued a promise that one day Eve's offspring would defeat the serpent who deceived her and ultimately bring about forgiveness and reconciliation for sinners. It's through a future child and a future woman's womb that God would save the world from the consequences of sin. So in that sense, all who continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, in other words, all followers of Jesus, are saved through a woman's childbearing. That's a good reminder for those who might abuse this passage to question the dignity, the worth, or the value of women. It's true that God may have made men and women different from each other. And in the household of God, their roles will not look the same. But God works powerfully through both. And if not for the womb of a woman named Mary, much later than Eve, then the Savior would not have come into the world. So if nothing else, our passage today ought to tell us one thing about the household of God. And it's this. It's going to look very different from the world around us. It's going to go against the grain of culture in many, many ways, in many, many times, in many, many places. Those cultures that do not know the truth about God. And according to Paul, that's not a bug. That's not a problem to be fixed. That is a feature to be highlighted. The household of God looks different from the world by design. It's on purpose. I mean, come on. Church discipline, kicking people out, taking prayer seriously, teaching that there are meaningful differences between men and women grounded in creation, 
to many cultures and many people and many times and many places, that is going to sound weird, foreign, bizarre, and maybe even backwards to many enlightened ears. But the church is meant to be a countercultural institution. We follow a king and a lord whose kingdom is not of this world. And neither is God's household. So, yes, the household of God might sound a bit different. And at times it may even rub us the wrong way. But then again, we are also people who believe that Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. We believe that he gave himself as a ransom for sinners. And if we have no problem believing that, as crazy as that sounds then may we also have no problem embracing this very different way of life in the church, the household of God. May we embrace the ways that God has called us and made us to be different. May we live as the household of God and glorify him accordingly. We've been declared to be God's sons and daughters, members of his family, By the broken body and shed blood of Christ. We've been filled with the spirit. We've been given his word so that we may conduct ourselves as such. So one of our prayers this morning and in weeks ahead and really for the rest of this church's existence. Is that we would function accordingly as the household of God that God has declared us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this text, even though it's hard and might rub us the wrong way and can be debated and questioned and argued about. Thank you for this text. Lord, I pray that instead of getting so focused on the weeds of this text, all the ins and outs and all the controversies and all the arguments, I pray that we would take just a few minutes at least And step back and look with wonder and awe just at the sheer fact that we can be called your household. Yes, there are certain ways that we're called to behave in your household. There are certain commands that you've given us. But may we not lose sight of the fact and not be not cease to be amazed by the fact that we can even call ourselves your household to begin with. That we can even call you our father to begin with. And that's through the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And so, Lord, knowing that we are your family, help us conduct ourselves accordingly, not just for our sake, not just for your sake even, but as Zach mentioned earlier, so that our lights may shine in the world around us, so that even as we look very different, we would also look very attractive to this world, because there is something different about us. So, Lord, help us take this text, help us chew on it, think about it, wrestle with it, figure out how to apply it as God's people in this church, and ultimately glorify you in the process. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for making us your family through who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. We ask this all in his name. Amen.